cliffcentral.com. A lot of people go into business because they want to make money. That is the first mistake. Your purpose is never and, and can never be. It's not about you. It's not about your stakeholders. It's not about your shareholders. It's not about anyone else other than your customers. Hi, everyone. Once again, welcome to Market Share. This is where I chat to people who influence the way brands are built, big brands, and small. And I'll spend some time on smaller brands as I believe they're the future of South Africa. I will also cover many other interesting marketing and advertising issues, as I'm going to do today. So, in a perfect world, I guess you would say the lovers would be French, the mechanics would be German, the chefs would be Italian, and everything would be organized by the Swiss. What am I talking about? I'm talking about culture and the lasting perception it creates. But today we are talking about culture in a completely different context. Culture and its importance to companies and brands, and culture as a marketing tool. As I mentioned in my last book, I really believe culture is more important than strategy. And today I'm joined by Ian Fur, a real culture vulture, and a man who has made company culture his life. Welcome, Ian Fur. Before we talk about culture, can we have a quick recap on your very colorful career? Okay, so, so I've been involved uh, in uh, various entrepreneurial ventures since I was 22 years old. Uh, that would include retailing and it would include music. I had a record company. I was involved as a race relations consultant for several years in the 90s, then came back to the retail business at a, a company called Supermart that we sold to Edcon. So this is a very brief version of my life. And then in 2004, after having sold Supermart to Edcon, I was looking for something to do. And I had, over the years, in all these various entrepreneurial ventures, I had been able to to build a concept around culture, what I call the culture blueprint, and, and how important, and I realized the importance of culture in business, and that it was more than just about how we do things around here. It, it was a marketing strategy. It was a business strategy. In fact, for me, culture was always at the bottom line. Tell me, how did you get to Sorbet then? By the time that I was about to start a new business in 2004, I had my culture blueprint and I, I did it slightly uh, you know, differently. I did it a little backwards because instead of going out and trying to find a company and then building a culture around that, I already had the culture that I wanted and all I needed was to find a business to, to insert or implement that culture. And that's really how Sobe was born. I was uh, lying on a massage table having a massage, a uh, legitimate one, just in case you're <laughs> wondering, Rich. Um, yeah. and, and, and the lady said to me, why don't you have a look at the beauty industry? And I said, well, no ways, you know, this is not the face for a beauty industry. But I, I said to her, well, you know, why the beauty industry? She said, well, there's a huge uh, gap in the market. And I said, but is there a market in the gap? And she said, why don't you go and have a look at it? And I did. And I did realize that there were no branded chains of beauty salons in the whole of South Africa. In fact, very few in the world, interestingly enough. And so this seemed to be like a great challenge. And I took out my culture blueprint and I said, right, off we go. Let's go to the beauty industry and see if we can make this work. 
And yeah, I think fortunately, 15 years down the line, and I look back at the success of Sorbet, I would definitely say that culture and the attitude of its people was, was definitely the competitive advantage for Sorbet. Terrific. So how do you create a company or brand culture? How do you go about doing it? Right. There's a number of important steps. And the first thing is to be absolutely crystal clear on what your purpose is. You know, when I started out with Sorbet, my purpose was a little bit confused in that I thought I wanted to be the number one beauty salon chain in the country. And and that really wasn't such a great purpose. In fact, my daughter, who was the marketing manager at the time, said, you know, who cares, Dad, uh, about your... You know, about that purpose. Nobody really cares if we're number one or number three or number ten. So we went back to the drawing board and we then developed a proper purpose, or what I call a reason for being. And our reason for being was touching people's lives in a positive way so that they would feel good about themselves. And that became our reason for being. It became our purpose. And every single thing that we did was thereafter was aligned to that purpose. Give me some examples. I think you even created your own language, didn't you? Correct, yeah. We called ourselves um, a community, not a company. It was a community of people because I always felt that, that a company doesn't have a soul, but a community of people does. We called the culture process, we called it the soul of Sorbet. Um, we called our, our clients uh, guests. We called our staff citizens, and, and we had our own language. And there was no there was no rocket science in that at all, other than we just wanted to be different. We wanted to differentiate ourselves from anything else that was out there in the market. And I realized at the time that, you know, marketing in particular has got a two-pronged strategy. The one is the traditional marketing. It, it's it's the, the corporate identity. It's the tone of voice. It's the uh, social media, the PR, the advertising above and below the line. All of that stuff was part of, of building the brand. But just as important for me in particular was the was culture and the ability you know, for people to become your marketing tool. And if you could create a sense of belonging and a sense of purpose in your people, and you could help them develop an attitude and a paradigm shift away from I just come to work to to make money towards I come to work to serve the needs and wants of people, then culture could become a fantastic marketing strategy. And that's where I put most of my focus. So as the CEO of the business, somebody asked me the other day, how much time did you focus on culture when you were building Sorbet? And I worked out very roughly around about 40% of my time was spent on, on the people side of the business. I did all the induction training myself. I wanted every single person in the organization to know exactly what our purpose was and what their purpose was. Why did they come to work? And I, I would ask them, that would always be the first question, why do you come to work? And and, and they would say, ah, oh, well, to make money and, and to make a living and to feed my family, etc., etc. And I would say, no, those are all wrong. You come to work to serve the needs and wants of people. And if you serve them well, you'll be able to make money. And that was the the paradigm shift that every person in the organization had to make. They had to realize this was not just a job. It was actually a privilege 
to be able to, to go out there and touch people's lives in a positive way, make them feel good about themselves. And that's what would bring them back again and again. And that's essentially how we built the brand, through the attitude of our people. But you built a franchise uh, as well because you had the thing grew and grew and grew and became very successful and it turned out to be a fantastic brand. How do you keep the culture going when you're building a franchise? Right. Well, that was the biggest challenge of all, to be quite honest. And that was the reason, you know, after I had done a little bit of homework on the subject, it was the reason why there were so few branded chains of beauty salons in South Africa and virtually throughout the world as well. In fact, in the UK, there still is today not one single branded chain of beauty salons that's got more than 20 outlets. So it's quite a, a, you know, a big issue in terms of consistency. Because of the very personal nature of, of beauty services, it's quite challenging to get a level of consistency across from one store to the next. So whether you're in Johannesburg or Cape Town or Durban or wherever you are, when you walk into a sorbet, you expect the same kind of service regardless. And that is the biggest challenge is to get the consistency. So how do we do that? Through our franchisees, we got them on board as well in terms of the culture. They had to understand what was the true purpose of our business. They had to understand the importance of service, you know, above all else. And they had to understand how to then manage and lead their people within the organization to do the same thing. So getting everybody on board was the biggest challenge of all. But I would like to suggest that although we never ever would get a hundred percent buy-in, obviously, I think we got enough buy-in to create that level of consistency that hadn't been able to be achieved prior to that. And and now I think uh, Sorbet has got like 220 stores, which I think is the largest beauty salon chain in Africa and probably in the top 20 in the world. And that was mainly due to the consistent level of service and the attitude of both the franchisees and the staff across the board. I mean, that's a fantastic achievement because it's like getting everybody to dance in the same pinhead. It's not that easy. <laughs> so, so, so if you were giving someone advice, Ian, if, if you're saying, I wanted to start a business today, how do you differentiate your culture from others? How do you set out the blueprint? It starts always with your purpose. You know, a lot of people go into business because they want to make money. That is the first mistake. Your purpose is never and, and can never be. It's not about you. It's not about your stakeholders. It's not about your shareholders. It's not about anyone else other than your customers. You need to understand that you are there to meet and exceed the needs of your customers if you ever want to build anything meaningful. So you need to shift the paradigm away from I come to work to make money and I've opened this business to make money. To I've opened this business to meet the needs and wants of my customers, and if I do that well, I will make lots of money. So it's always putting people before profit and service before reward. That's the big shift that needs to be made right from the very outset. So once you have your purpose, then you can also start to support your purpose by getting everyone else to understand throughout the organization what their purpose is when they come to work, and that is to serve, to serve people. You know, business is nothing more than just people serving people. 
That's what it is. I think we complicate it and we overcomplicate it. But at the end of the day, it is so simple. People serving people. And then you support that with, with some core values. And, you know, you need to understand what are the things that you want to live by, integrity and respect and trust and all of those things. Each company develops their own core values. And then you have to live those values. You can't put them up on the wall. You've got to actually live them because as a leader of an organization, you have to earn what I call the moral authority to lead. That's fantastic. I'll, I'll give you a, a simple example. Actually, I saw the other day, pedigree dog food in the States. As you say, you have to serve your customer. And their line was very simply, we are for dogs, because that's what they do. And the way they built that culture was they would employ someone who loved dogs. If someone came along and didn't have a dog, they wouldn't employ them. And they'd encourage them to bring their dogs to work. So they made the, the working environment perfect for dogs. So you had your desk, you had your little place for your dog to sit, and they had uh, walking hours for dogs and so on. And their manual, their kind of culture manual, was called Dogma. Because <laughs> it was for the love of dogs. And they did everything against this philosophy. So culture is also, in a way, a philosophy, isn't it? I mean, your, your culture is your philosophy, would you say? As far as I'm concerned, Rich, culture is the bottom line. It's, it's the philosophy, it's the strategy, it's the marketing, it's everything. What's also quite interesting in terms of, of marketing, you know, if you look at the, the chain of service and, and we ask ourselves, who is the real customer at the end of the day? Because a lot of franchisors believe that their franchisees are the customers because they are serving them. But the real customers are the end users, the consumers at the end of the day. Those are the people that, that will make or break our business. The franchisees were really just a part of the service chain that we developed in order to go out there and satisfy the needs of our consumers. So they are not in themselves our customers. They were part of our service chain, our distribution of service from the head office through the franchisees into the stores, through the staff, to get to the end user. And that is really our marketing strategy, was to make sure that the end user, the consumer who comes in for her nails and for her hair and for whatever else she's doing, she comes in and she has a fantastic experience that's going to bring her back again and again. Tell me something, in today's environment, people working from home, does that not hinder culture? Because now I'm sitting at home, I'm away from everybody else, I'm away from the from the action, uh, but I'm still doing my job. How do you keep the culture going when people are sitting at home? Right, that's a very interesting one, and I think a lot of people are learning about that as we go along. What is the real impact of working from home in, in situations like this? I, th I think there's a number of pros and a number of cons. And the cons really are that people are sort of, by nature, social beings. They like to interact with each other. They like to sit and have a cup of tea in between their breaks and have a chat to their friends at work. And I think they miss that a lot. I've been doing a little bit of homework on this and research, and that's one of the things they miss a lot. The other challenge that they have is that they don't know exactly how to separate working time from home time, and that gets a bit blurred. But what has actually happened in some cases, particularly with some of my clients, is that there has been a strengthening of culture 
because of the fact that you know people are now actually talking to each other more often than they were before through Zoom and Skype and all the, the other virtual meetings, and there's been a pulling together because of the crisis, pulling together of people that was a little bit maybe absent in the past. So there has been a sort of recognition of, of the need to retain a culture. The problem is that as soon as you become inward looking in your life, when you're looking at yourself, I call that an eye specialist, a person who is there for themselves, that everything they do is for their own benefit. You know, I am this, I want that, I, I, I. And then you get the, the people who contribute, who come to serve. And if you have a situation like we have at the moment, there's a lot of worry, there's a lot of concern, there's a lot of issues that are going on in people's minds, and, and they are worried about themselves now. And when you start worrying too much about yourself, you start to lose focus on the customer. And that's where we need to make sure that culture doesn't break down and that people don't forget the purpose of work and why they're there in the first place. And so that, that is, I think, the challenge at the moment, is how to keep the culture alive, and not just the culture, but the purpose alive. And Because if things are not going well, the first thing or the first person to always suffer is the customer. And that, that's really the biggest problem. And that's why it's so important to create a culture that has a, a support base, that has a sense of belonging. And this is where we get into another big area of mine, and, and that is also managing the socio-political environment in which we run our businesses. We do need to understand that that's a highly complex issue. We have particularly the issue of race relations and racial polarization in the workplace. You know, it was quite interesting when I started Sorbet, my very first sort of function that I went to, I was invited by one of our suppliers to a launch of a new product. I had just started. And throughout my working life, I'd always worked heavily with, you know, with black people. And so I arrived at this function and I saw that there were mainly white people there. And, and, you know, I, I couldn't understand. So I went to, to one of the, of the managers and I said, you know, where the black people? What, what happened? And she said, no, no, no. You know, um, our, our consumers, because it's an upmarket brand, our consumers are predominantly white. And those white consumers, like to be worked on by white therapists, and they weren't that keen on having black therapists. And this is back in 2004. And I, I made up my mind at that point in time that no matter what happened to Sorbet, whether it failed or succeeded or whatever, we were going to change that. And, and that's really, looking back, probably one of the things that I'm most proud about in terms of Sorbet is the fact that we literally changed the face and the color of, of the beauty industry now it's 95% black in terms of staff, whereas it was 95% white when we started. And you did. And you know what I think as well, Ian, and I'm sure you'll agree, that culture, if you have a common culture, it brings people together and color disappears completely because you're now singing off one common hymn sheet. You might go home somewhere different, but when you're at work, you, you have a togetherness. Would you agree with that? In theory, that, that, that's exactly what we want, Reg. But in reality, it doesn't always work like that. In fact, it very seldom works like that. We, we have people who are in working environments 
who do not feel that they are always included, they do not feel they get equal treatment, they do not feel that they get fairly treated. And so when you have that type of situation, the first thing that you lose focus on is always the customer, because now you're worrying about how you are personally being treated, you know, about your managers, about your leaders, about your colleagues, and, and there's, there's a lot of issues that stem from our past and what we call systemic racism and institutionalized racism that flow all the way through into the workplace and have a big impact on the workplace and have an impact on productivity and service. Because unless everybody has a proper sense of belonging in the culture, unless everyone has a true sense of being included, that is always going to undermine the ability of the organization to be productive and to be successful. And I truly believe that polarization, and particularly racial and to a degree gender polarization in the workplace in South Africa is the single biggest problem that we have from a productivity and service point of view. Because we haven't yet been able to create those fantastic cultures where everybody has a common purpose, everyone feels a sense of belonging, and then we really go out there and serve our customers to the very best of our ability. That's really not happening in the way that it should be in South Africa. So we, we work very hard on that issue. So is that why you started the Hatch Institute? And that's correct, Rich. Yeah. Um, we, we started the Hatch Institute because of, you know, over all these years of my experience with culture in these various organizations, I realized the impact of the socio-political landscape outside of business and how that impacts on what happens inside the company. So a lot of the work that we do is focused on, on individual development, personal development. It's focused on leadership, what we call culture-driven leadership, where people need to be leaders who not only, you know, look after the, the typical leadership issues and, and styles and strategies that we've had in the past, but also now have to have additional skills, the, 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 the skill to be able to navigate this complex, highly complex socio-political and racial environment. So that requires a special kind of leader. And and, and the more we, we understand it, I think the more progress we're going to make. Unfortunately, a lot of companies and a lot of leaders don't seem to think or don't seem to realize the extent of the problem that we're dealing with here. And they tend to want to brush it under the carpet and say, you know, it's not really an issue. Um, you know, let, let's just meet each other, let's have a meeting of the minds and we all move forward together, which, which is not realistic and, in fact, is somewhat naive sometimes. And so we do need to understand systemic racism. We need to understand how we got to think the way we do. We need to understand our unconscious biases, how we became what we are, because from the time that we are born, we, we, we learn and we experience things through our parents and our and our environment, social environment, school environment, working environment, educational environment, everything. And we eventually develop what we call a book of rules, which is how we see the world. And that's highly biased. Although we don't like to acknowledge it, everybody has biases. And a bias is nothing more than a prejudice. It's, it's, you know, I prefer this to that, or I'm prejudiced against that. 
So once you understand all these issues, you can start to then unpack them and understand where your unconscious biases are perhaps hindering your ability to earn that moral authority to lead because you think that you're okay, but you're actually not because the reality is everybody is biased in one form or another. And so the more we can help people to understand that, the more we can practice what we call culture nearing, which, which is our word for, for building a culture in a diverse work environment. So you have to wash their minds as well as their faces. Exactly. It's, <laughs> and that mind shift, big time. You have to shift, shift the minds of people. You know, people say, well, I, I don't see color. You know, I'm kind of blind. Um, and, you know, I don't see race. I just see everybody the same. Quite frankly, that's not real. That's, that's, that's just nonsense. So let's, let's go behind the mask of Ian Furner. What's the one thing you're scared of? I've, I've always had an, it's been an interesting journey for me because funny enough, public speaking is the thing that frightens me most. Um, even though I do a lot of it, um, as, as a child, uh, around about 16 years old, I developed quite a bad stutter and a speech defect, which really destroyed my, my confidence and my ability to communicate effectively. And so I went into my shell and when I eventually got to into the work environment after successfully dropping out of university, I had to communicate with people, and I realized that. So it's been a battle ever since then to overcome the fear of, of public speaking, and I still have it today. You know, it might not sound so, but, but every time I stand up, particularly in front of a live audience, I get nervous, and that's what's scary. But I think you do pretty well. <laughs> I really do. And Ian, what do you do for fun? For fun, uh, I, I love watching sport, and I'm an absolute wildlife fanatic, as you are, Red, the two yeah. together. <laughs> That's right, we both are, yeah. love the same things, yeah. So, yeah, so, yeah I, I, I love wildlife. I love being in the bush, and I enjoy sport, watching sports, especially rugby, cricket, soccer, all of that stuff. Oh, that's great. So, Ian, thank you very, very much. I'm just going to wrap this up by saying life would be pretty boring without culture, wouldn't it? It influences the brands we buy, the music we listen to, the food we eat, even our values and views on morality. As Mahatma Gandhi said, a nation's culture resides in the hearts and in the soul of its people. And he could have just as easily said, a company's culture resides in the hearts and souls of its people. Thanks for listening to Market Share with me, Reg Lascaris. I'll be back soon with another episode giving my take on brands and companies, big and small, in South Africa and elsewhere. So chat soon. Cheers. Cliffcentral.com.